dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see headlights on both ends of my day this country Welcome, folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Associate Editor Jennifer M. Latsky, and I'm joined by my colleague, Associate Editor Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. Happy Palindrome Week, Kayleen. (laughs) Do you know what Palindrome Week is? Yes. (laughs) All right, for you listeners out there, it's the last week of this century that the numbers in the month, day, and year are the same going forwards and the same backwards. So 9, 12, 19 looks like 9, 12, 19 going forwards and backwards. Cool. I think it's kind of cool. <laughs> my dad and my brother-in-law have birthdays. They Their birthday is the same day, and it's during palindrome week. So I'm, I'm pretty tickled. It's I'm numbers dork, <laughs> whatever. My birthday's <laughs> on October 10th, so it's 10-10. But in 2010, it was kind of cool because it was 10, 10, 10. <laughs> right? See, it's fun when there's things like this. I always wish that I had one of those birthdays that would have been like that. Mine's 5-11. Yeah, about the only cool thing with that is 100 years before I was born on the exact same date, we had a cousin that was born. And when you look at pictures of her and my sister, they look identical. Cool. Yeah. yeah isn't that funny? Okay, so we are in the middle of Kansas State Fair Week. First weekend was last weekend, so how did we do at the pedal pull? Little brother out pulled big brother. Oh boy, <laughs> that must have been a fun car ride home. It wasn't too bad. Chance thought he just won everything and was pretty happy when he got a ribbon, and Sean's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Sean's done with this, huh? Yeah, he wanted to go ride the rides and eat his way through the state fair, but it didn't happen that way because his dad needed to get home and ride some horses and somebody was picking up a horse so we had to be home uh well i was not supposed to be there for three days in a row (laughs) i was only supposed to be there friday and saturday and then you know i'd I'd have my fill of the fair and maybe garrett and i you know the fell and i we'd we'd take the kids next weekend the, the last weekend of the fair no 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 things changed <laughs> we we decided to go sunday too which, Sunday was a lot cooler than the previous two days. Yeah, it was and pretty muggy, though. Y- y- trust me. It was <laughs> it was hot. And, and by hot, I mean surface of the sun kind of hot <laughs> and awful um, on Friday and Saturday. But, um, okay, so you know my, my tradition is to go under the grandstands to the only place that you should ever buy ice cream on the Kansas State Fairgrounds. I don't care. They're not paying me. This is this is where you should only get your ice cream. <laughs> it's the Kansas Dairy Bar, and it's run by a Kansas Dairyman, and this is where you get the single best ice cream. Call Hall Ice Cream. <laughs> From K-State. <laughs> From K-State. And uh, so this is the tradition. Every year, when I was a kid growing up, Dad would haul us over to the grandstands to get our ice cream cone from the Dairyman because he supported all sorts of agriculture. And I still do it to this day. I took um, the fella and the kids over there on Sunday, 
and for the first time, I got to skip the line and ordered my ice cream online via their website, paid for it online, picked it up at the window, skipped the lines. It's the first year that they're rolling this out, and there are some glitches in the system, but be patient because they are ironing out those glitches, and this is working like a dream, Kayleen. (laughs) You know, it always had a long line because every time I've ever been there, it's been a long line. Yes. <laughs> the long lines are worth it. Yes. You want the good ice cream and not the soy milk, whatever, <laughs> that you find other other places on the fairgrounds. Not to say that soybeans are bad because we have soybean growers that listen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just repeating what my dad said, okay? Blame him. <laughs> but... um. It was it was slick as a whistle. I, I worked I did that on Saturday and then when I brought Garrett and the kids back on Sunday we did it again. We ran into a glitch. That's okay. They identified it and they have figured it out. <laughs> so um, you go to t- KansasDairyBar.com and you follow the directions and you can order your ice cream there. Now they do ask and and folks use a little bit of common sense. You can't just pre-order your ice cream and then wander around the fairgrounds and, and expect show up and then show up later. three hours later. <laughs> you have to be in the grandstands while you are ordering your ice cream. Okay, they do not they do not take responsibility for any ice cream that melts because this is a they fill out the orders as they get them. So they're filling out orders in person that that walk up to the window. And they're filling out the online orders as they get them. Do they have extra crew for this? Um, they do have a little bit of extra crew back there. I'm, I'm just going to say, it's worth the line. It is so, so worth the line. That Those and Pronto Pups. You you became, you you turned me into a Pronto <laughs> Pup convert, Kayleen, because I never liked them when I was a kid. But And that's what my boys and I had at, before the pedal pole. So my husband's <laughs> like, you're going to eat those things again? I want something with some meat on it. So he went and had a mountain of nachos with pulled pork or something on them the one thing i want to try is moink balls but um, that was the the booth that we went to they had the moink balls you know i'm i'm just one of those i I, i'm kind of nervous about it however friday at the fair i went and did the media preview and um we tried the crispy cream jelly filled donut hot dog that the carnival were they the ones that had the Krispy Kreme burger? Yes, the same place on on Food Row. Yeah. So they made the bun out of a, a raspberry jelly filled Krispy Kreme donut. <laughs> now, folks, I know that this probably does not sound appetizing, but I am here to tell you, it it's actually pretty good. <laughs> it's probably sweet and savory and salty and. Oh, yeah. All in one bite. And they put bacon on it, too. Bacon and powdered sugar. Honest to God, this thing looks horrible. Yeah, the picture they had didn't look very appetizing. (laughs) But, I mean, there's no no way to pretty up that picture. No. You know, unless you're a food um, photographer, and they don't have food (laughs) photographers. (laughs) But I will say you should probably split that with, like, four or five different people in your group because one to a customer is a diabetic coma waiting to happen. (laughs) Um, let's see. What else have you been out and about and learned and seen? I haven't really been anywhere this week. We're tomorrow we're going to Oklahoma. Spencer's entered in a ranch rodeo or ranch bronc riding in Perry, Oklahoma. So we're gonna take the boys and go to the city and 
Oh, good. Do a family thing, hopefully. If we good. don't kill each other before then. Hey, speaking of Oklahoma, I, I'm sorry, honey. I got I to gotta pass along my condolences. I saw <laughs> that you guys, you lost T. Boone Pickens yesterday. Yeah, he died yesterday. He's 91. You know, say what you will about the man. He was a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, he was kind of kind of a mogul and did what he did for the oil industry and tried to get into the renewables and he was had some foresight on some things and it was sad to see him go but i mean everybody's got their time yeah yeah <laughs> and well oklahoma state football wouldn't be where they were at if t boone hadn't donated his his millions of dollars so well here's uh our hats off to him and his family and our condolences to all of Cowboy Nation, because I know that that kind of that, that hurts a little bit, and I, I get it. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we would be remiss if we did not mention that this week is the remembrance of 9-11. You know, it's been 18 years, Kayleen, and people are, are starting to heal a little bit, I think. You know, I'm, I'm seeing less and less raw grief and more quiet reflection. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I was kind of shocked. My boys had, the little one didn't say anything, but the older one, he's in third grade. They apparently talked about it in class and we were watching something on the history channel last night and he knew all the big, all the big points. So I was pretty, pretty happy that he was able to kind of grasp the concept. How do they teach something like that to third grade? I don't know, but I just was general terms you know these Mm -hmm. evil people wanted to hurt the americans and kind of put it that way so i don't know that was the right way but we watched they had the raw footage on Mm -hmm. the history channel last night when we got home from town and oh my it had the the voices of the first responders you know and the recordings of that sort of thing and it was kind of you know there's a lot of storylines that come out of that uh, and we think in stories because yeah. that's that's what we do for our job. We think in stories. We think in pictures. We think in, in audio and video. That day, I was working here at the Journal, and I had come in just a smidge late. And by the time I had left the house and gotten into the office, the first plane had hit. The second plane hit while we were here in the office, gathered mm-hmm. around the one TV that was in our publisher's um, office that had cable. Yeah. And as we watched all of that, I could remember my thought was, how do you cover this? How do you even begin to put a plan together to cover the massive amount of stories Mm -hmm. and and storylines? And how do you do that while you're also grieving? Yeah. You know, a lot of people don't understand that when you work in this business, you have to compartmentalize what you want to feel and react in order to get the job done. Yeah. And and those those feelings and those reactions, they come out later, sometimes much later, sometimes sooner than you think, unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. But I, I just noticed that it seemed online and, and some people might think that this is, you know, we're we're being ungrateful. We're not we're not thinking about, you know, we, we forgot, et cetera, et cetera. Well I don't say it's forgetting. I think it's I think it's remembering it in a different way. Yeah. I agree. It just gives me hope though that your your littles are being taught about what happened in a in an age appropriate manner yeah. and 
they can kind of grasp that this was our... Did you see the pictures on Facebook from uh, Garden City's airport? Yeah. They had pictures of the planes that landed over there that were grounded. and um, They had on, I don't know if it was a History Channel or if it was Discovery last night, they had the air traffic controllers that were in Canada that had mm-hmm. 224 flights to land in like eight airports, little airports. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of neat to, to watch them recall the day that they had to do all this. Have you seen, there is a, a clip going around on Twitter of the actual footage of a radar yeah, with I, all the I planes in the air. I retweeted that yesterday. I thought that was kind of cool. And, and I remember... It was like 20 seconds, 20 yeah, second clip. They got them dropped. I yeah. mean, they got them down in and landed in minutes. Yeah. Absolute minutes. Um, our former colleague, Larry Dryling, he was coming home from an International Federation of Ag Journalists conference, and his plane was diverted. He was one of the ones that was diverted to Canada. Yeah. Remember that. Because they the air traffic controllers in Canada were they didn't have the information they didn't know what happened they just knew there was a crisis and you the borders were closed and they had to get them landed and they had this two of the pilots that were on one of the planes from that was coming from across the sea and it was kind of neat to to listen mm-hmm. to their their experience yeah there was another clip I saw this morning of a first responder from the the New York Fire Department they went they took him out to the the salvage yard where all the trucks and cars and everything from the fire department were being housed until the investigators could go through them. And it was pretty stark seeing all the crushed fire trucks and the yeah. all those big machinery that they used and the ladders and everything all mangled. And then, then they showed all the debris that they had hauled out and how they were going through it. The FBI was going through it. And I had never seen anything, seen a clip like that. But knowing, like, from Greensburg when the tornado hit and all yep. the debris that they hauled off, it's kind of unreal thinking about what's in that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, we're learning that all of that construction material that they inhaled, whether yeah. they were working the pile trying to find survivors and trying to find folks whether they were coming out of the buildings and, and made it out of the buildings that were on fire, yeah, that has caused innumerable health problems. And that's why it's so important for us to, to not forget and for us to, to back those first responders and, and those crews. They, mm-hmm. they gave their lives yeah. um, to, to not, just, not just on 9-11, but the weeks and the months and the years after, they were working there every single day trying to, provide closure to people so we we should really you know we we, we owe them a debt mm-hmm. and granted I'm in Kansas I I don't have a dog in the hunt there but you know what I would hope that if something like that were to happen in our area we'd stand be- behind the people that put themselves on the line yeah I think for me there was an, a tweet yesterday from a gentleman who went through and shared pictures and photos of every single working dog, rescue dog, cadaver dog that worked the pile. And it really stuck with me that the the bond between an animal and their handler when they have a job to do. And uh, I, I just, dogs are amazing, Kaylee. Yeah. <laughs> they really are. Bless their hearts mm. for going out there and donating their time. So yeah. it may feel like we have forgotten but let's just say we have 
turned maybe a different corner on how we consider 9-11 and the date now. Yeah. So. If you've got a comment or a thought we'd like to hear us, you can drop us a line at hpjtalk at hpj.com and let us know, or you can always call us at the office, 1-800-452-7171. In this week's episode, we're going to bring you the stories you might have missed in the September 9th print edition. We'll have an interview with Texas A&M's Justin Benavides about the current cattle markets after Tyson's fire, and we talk with Chief Ag Negotiator Ambassador Greg Dowd about trade issues on the world stage, and then of course, Kayleen's got markets, and we'll have some final thoughts. Every day, we are very thankful to be able to live and work in this great nation of ours, and we want to thank you for riding with us on HPJ Talk. This week's cover story is from web editor Shauna Rumbaugh, Corn in the Classroom, which talks about Kansas Corn's work to increase science literacy with a new corn-based children's book, We Grow Corn, Raising Corn on a Kansas Family Farm. The National Corn Growers Association recognized Kansas Corn's STEM program for Teachers with a Reaching for Excellence Award. Inside, we announced the winners of our 2020 Down Country Roads Calendar Photo Contest. Congratulations to our grand prize winner, Debbie Steelwalt of Beeler, Kansas. To order your copy of our popular calendar, call 1-800-452-7171 and ask for Mary. On page 7, Kayleen has coverage from the Water Technology Field Day in Larned, August 23rd. The field day focused on the Water Pack ILS farm near St. John in Stafford County. This farm's focus is looking at economic feasibility of various sprinkler equipment setups. On page 10, copy editor Jennifer Thurer writes about the final post from the All Aboard Harvest Cruise, and you can see their season wrap-up on page 13 to 21. We want to thank our sponsors, John Deere, Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children, and Underfirth Manufacturing for helping us bring you All Aboard Wheat Harvest. And catch the tail end of the Harvest Trail online at allaboardharvest.com. Leading our livestock section, managing editor Dave Bergmeier talks about Secretary of Ag Purdue's move to direct the Packer and Stockyards Division to investigate the beef pricing margins in the two weeks following the August 9th Tyson plant fire in Holcomb, Kansas. Later in this podcast, we'll hear from Texas A&M AgriLife Extension economist Justin Benavides out of Amarillo. He talks about the economic motivators behind the market movements we saw in those last two weeks. Folks, if you have a response to something you've heard or read, or there's a local topic you want to bring to the attention of our readers and listeners, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or at hpjtalk at hpj.com. Or you can always call us 1-800-452-7171. We want to hear from you. Monday this week, I dropped down to Canadian, Texas for the cow-calf and stalker cattle meeting there. There I ran into Texas A&M AgriLife Extension economist Justin Benavides. 
Cattlemen there are quite riled up about the markets following the Tyson fire, and he shared some interesting insights about that topic and more. We're here with Justin Benavides, and he is the basically the new face over at um, Amarillo. I don't know about that. One I've been told two. I have a face for radio. Oh, so. there you go. Yeah. Um, all right, so you gave a presentation today on a lot of hot topics in um, the economics of the cattle industry right now. Um, first off, you, you gave a little bit of an, um, let's, let's talk about the elephant in the room, the overall impact of the Holcomb fire. What do you see a month out? Why the economic factors that went into what happened? So a month out now, basically what happened is the uh, economic forces that we would expect are kind of what took place. So if you view beef and cattle as uh, two different markets, which they, they are connected markets, but in certain cases they function as different markets, then this is what we would expect. The demand for beef uh, stayed the same but there was a perceived supply shortage. So people who were purchasing beef suddenly had the perception that we were going to lose 6% of our supply because Holcomb accounted for 6% of our overall beef processing. So if we see a decrease in uh, supply, but a stable demand that we would expect the price to go up. So the beef price did go up. That's the direction we would expect it to go. Now on the other side, the demand for live cattle the perception was that it went down by 6% because we lost 6% of our production capacity. And so if we see supply staying the same, but demand going down, which it, the perception was it went down, we would expect the price to drop because there is an oversupply or a glut of cattle that are in the market, or the perception is that there's a glut of cattle in the market. Now the data going forward uh, says that we were able to reorganize and that now we're sort of restructuring where we're sending our calves and that we're able to uh, maybe process more on Saturdays. But uh, the perception that led to all of this uh, drop in price for cattle and increase in price for beef is what we would expect the economics to say. So just to be clear, it was the perception of the folks in New York City or other places that are making those purchasing decisions, not the actual consumer, not the cattleman himself, not the feedlot guys. It's the the folks that are getting into and out of the commodities markets correctly, right? Well, I would expect that to have an influence. The people who are day traders, the people who are uh, managing their portfolios and see some sort of sudden signal in the news that is saying we've lost 6% of our capacity, um, they make up a big portion of those markets. And if they don't understand that we are able to restructure our processing capacity, process more on Saturdays or move to other plants, that could be a signal that would send people who don't understand agriculture away from those contracts, making the price fall for cattle. Um, And so it just depends on, yeah, they may be in New York City, they may be right here in our, you know, local area and their buyers. Um, the perception was we lost that capacity and um, that's what impacted both of those markets. Okay, so now let's um, let's talk about the overall outlook, the overall um, economic situation for the United States. You mentioned, um, let's get down to the nitty gritty and remind you, you're talking to an ag com <laughs> major, not an ag economics major. So um, explain by, uh, about what's going on in the uh, overall U.S. economy and what that might mean for the cow-calf guy or the stalker guy. So we are um, seeing what we're overall is going to be a moderately slower economic growth in the near future. That's what our projections are for at the macro level. Um, that's not a recession. That is not to say we're going to a recession. It's a slowdown in economic growth. Um, so instead of 3%, we might be looking at 2% in total growth. Um, so what that means is that uh, 
people might be more cautious in their investments. But where this is going to be very important is that globally we're seeing the same sort of influence and where we see a lot of growth in the demand for proteins is in our developing countries. So if we see a slowdown in economic growth in our developing countries, we're going to see less purchases of meat from those countries. Because when you have a higher income, you typically spend more of your food budget on meat rather than uh, plant-based foods. And so if we see a slowdown in those global country or in, in the international market as far as um, overall economic growth, we should expect to see a slowdown in the demand for our protein products. And that brings me to the African swine fever question in the room. I mean, a lot of guys are thinking, what does uh, swine disease have to do with a cattleman in Texas or a cattleman in, in Kansas? But there's actually some, um, some impact it could face on the, on the beef industry, right? Yes. So uh, African swine fever is, uh, first of all, a huge biosecurity issue. And we need to make sure that um, we put in place the uh, barriers that allow us to uh, keep African swine fever out, not only for our, our overall um, hog market, but for the perception of livestock and protein safety in the United States in the first place. Consumer perception is very important. And so making sure we have healthy animals, not only for their welfare and ours, but for um market perception is very important. But where that could impact us in the long term is that um, pork can be for substitute products. So if we see uh, an increase in the price of pork uh, here in the United States because people, say in China, are demanding more of our pork, um, we would see more people start to switch from pork to, say, beef and chicken because of the relative increase in the price of pork. So if we saw an increase in the overall demand for our pork globally, we could see some price strength in beef and chicken because more of our consumers are going to move towards those products. Like you said, our rising tide floats all boats. Yes, and substitute products it does. See, I was listening. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and um, finally, let's look at uh, the overall outlook for the cattlemen coming into this fall. We've got Holcomb's impacts that we don't know just quite what, what that'll be just yet. Um, we haven't gotten our cattle on feed numbers yet. We've got cattle that are coming out of the West. What could that mean for our high plains guys? So my overall outlook for the next few months is that if you have the grass to hold on to your animals, that would be, uh, probably the best advice right now. Um, we've got places in the panhandle that have in the high plains in general that have had very good rainfall in the last couple of months. Um, if you've got the forage and the cheap feed available to hold on to your animals, I think this would be one of those opportunities where if you can hold on a little longer on that forage, uh, you might see some premiums in the spring because the people who are getting rid of their cows are influencing the number of calves we're gonna have in the spring and a lower calf number uh, would mean that we're gonna expect higher prices. So if you can hold on with that forage, that's what I would recommend. All right, any last thoughts? Uh, that's what I've got. If you have any questions for me, uh, I've got a blog at Amarillo Ag Econ, and uh, you can call me at the Amarillo Extension Center anytime. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Justin Benavides. I'm going to get it one of these days. <laughs> and we'll see you later. Um, and remember, you can always catch this and more at www.hpj.com. We want to remind our readers that the 2019 High Plains Journal crop books are on their way and issues coming soon. Are you looking for information about wheat trials in Kansas, Oklahoma, Colorado, or Texas? We have that data for you to use in selecting your next variety. Or if you're looking for variety trial data from various fall crops like corn, sorghum, or soybeans, we have that coming as well. So be looking for the 2019 HPJ crop books in your print issues today. This year, the Kansas State Fair's Legislators Day had a lot of news coming out of it. 
from Congressman Dr. Roger Marshall's announcement that he's running for Senate to the annual Legislators Showmanship Contest. U.S. Trade Representative Chief Ag Negotiator Ambassador Greg Dowd, a Kansas boy from Jewell County, came out for WIBW's Ag Issues Forum and spoke about ag trade issues on the world stage. So we're with uh, Chief Ag Negotiator Ambassador Greg Dowd. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Um, let's talk a little bit. You're here at the State Fair today to talk about trade. <laughs> Top five things. Let's talk about USMCA. Where are we at on that? We are uh, frantically trying to get that thing passed through Congress. Hopefully we can get that done uh, here September or October time period. You know, this is a deal where it's the same or better, regardless of what aspect of the U.S. economy we're talking about. You know, most of the tariffs in agriculture were zero a long time ago. You know, our, our mantra going in was do no harm. Uh, we've made this a much better agreement, updated it to the 21st century. It's time to get it ratified, time to get it passed. So speaking of updating it for the 21st century, what are maybe one or two things that were really good things for Kansas farmers, High Plains farmers up and down the plains? Well, the two areas that we really needed to fix that were really difficult were dairy with Canada and a little bit on uh, poultry with Canada because they have supply control systems up there. You can't have a dairy cow in Canada unless you have quota. It's like our sugar program or our old tobacco program up there. And, uh, you know, this was a very, very difficult conversation. And, and uh, my uh, boss, Ambassador Lighthizer, had to get very, very involved in this. And, and he was lamenting how difficult it was. And I said, look, this is the challenge. Nobody ever has got a chink in that armor up there in their dairy system. We got one for the first time up there. And so we made some significant progress up there. Uh, but uh, for the rest of agriculture, uh, we're in really solid shape. Uh, with USMCA. We got some biotech stuff in there that isn't really as important for Canada and Mexico as it is when we take that to the rest of the world, particularly when we have a conversation with Japan or the UK with the Europeans. This is going to be really important language. We just had uh, some movement on Japan. Um, What are the bright spots for Kansas and, and High Plains guys there? This is a very significant situation for us with Japan and agriculture is, is we have a situation where Canada, Australia, and the Europeans have deals that entered into place within the last year. They have a tariff advantage with us, against us right now into Japan. Uh, so this is a conversation about trying to figure out how we can get even with them and, and have the same tariffs as they have into the Japanese market. You know, this is our third biggest market overall, $14 billion. This is our biggest beef market. Uh, We sell them about $2 billion in beef a year. And the tariffs on this are huge, 38.5%. So we can get those brought down and and expand that market. This is a really, really important discussion that we're having. Uh, For me, it's been a very stressful last few weeks. Uh, But hopefully we'll have some news for you here very soon. And Japan's also important because we've worked really, really hard the last 60-some-odd years to build those markets. I mean, they have developed a taste for our beef, for our for our wheat, for things like that, right? It's almost a sacred relationship. You know, my first job when I left K-State was working for the U.S. Wheat Associates in Portland, Oregon. And 40% of U.S. wheat exports go out of Portland to Asia. And uh, so I had an opportunity to have lunch with the Japanese almost every day and develop that relationship with them in those days. And that really came in handy when we had the, the old mad cow BSE thing with Japan and I was at the Cattleman, and we had to work through all of that. And we finally, it took us 15 years to get that beef thing fixed with Japan. 
we finally got it done and, and now we're working forward. So you're absolutely right. This is a very important relationship that we have between our two countries in agricultural trade. The elephant in the room, China. Where do we stand on that? You touched a little bit on it today during the Farm Bureau breakfast, and I assume you'll touch a little bit on it later on um, in, on the main stage. But um, you said that this is not going to be done in one day. There's long-term um, thoughts going on here. What what can you tell us about working on the agreement with China or working with on trade agreements with China? What I can tell you is the issue with China isn't tariffs. It's non-tariff trade barriers. And so it's, it's, we're still stuck on dealing with the MADCAL BSE thing. We're still stuck on things uh, with regard to biotechnology that they don't approve. Uh, these are maddening things that they block our access. We haven't sold them a pound of poultry since 2015 due to high path avian influenza. Well, the rest of we resolve that you know, within months with the whole world except for China. Way back, you know, almost four or five years ago. So these have been long, arduous, difficult conversations trying to resolve these issues. We have spent hours and hours and hours with China. I think I've spent either in a room face-to-face with my Chinese counterpart or by video conference, we've sat down 21 times and, and tried to sort these things out. So this is, we've made a lot of progress. We still have things to work out. This is a long, difficult process, but China bought $124 billion in agricultural products from the world last year. Our total exports to the whole world were 145. In our best year, we sold China $20 billion. We ought to be able to greatly expand that, way beyond that, if we had access to beef, pork, poultry, hay, alfalfa, pet food is one of the issues that drives me crazy. Dairy products, the list goes on, ethanol. The list goes on and on and on of things that we ought to be able to sell to China if we can get this sorted out. So for farmers up and down the plains that may be a little bit frustrated, what would you like to say to them if you had them in a room together? Uh, What I would say first and foremost is, you know, we went quite a few years here without really moving the ball down the field at all on trade. We have had an enormous, in the last 18 months, we have been so incredibly busy uh, I'm actually leaving the state fair today to go to Thailand and then Vietnam and then to the WTO in Geneva in the next week. And, and that's what we do at USTR. It's, it's crazy <laughs> scheduling. Uh, but the point I, I have to so often help people understand is you've got one shot. You've got one shot to get the agreement right. So if it takes us an extra week or two or, or with China, I mean, the, these are, this is the biggest trade discussion in the history of the world. You've got to get it right. And, and so if it takes us a little extra time, I, I know everybody's anxious. Believe me, I'm more anxious than anybody. We have got to get this done, but we've also got to get it done right. Any final thoughts? Um, just know that, you know, looking forward to uh, having conversations here soon on Japan. That's, uh, that's a big one. And hopefully we can have something for you soon. Great. Well, thank you, Ambassador Greg Dowd. And um, for more, you can always visit us online at www.hpj.com. Thank you. Thank you. Your grain market prices from Dodd City's Pride Ag Resources. On September 3rd, corn was up at $3.52. Wheat was down at $3.27. 
Milo was up at $2.96 and soybeans were up at $7.44. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters at our website, hpj.com slash sign up. Simply select the topics that interest you and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Next week's print issue of High Plains Journal is our outdoors issue with a story about land from Jenny. Be sure to watch for that in your mailboxes September 16th and look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcasts. You can also find us on places like iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. We're also on Instagram. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again for riding along with us, folks, as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. This has been a production of High Plains Journal, all rights reserved. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both ends of my